Welcome to the Sacramental Charismatic. I'm your host, Luke Garrity, and on this podcast, I discuss topics related to the church, the Holy Spirit, mission, and how these subjects intersect within sacramentality. I'm a pastor theologian living in Northern California, and while I'm primarily discussing topics related to these themes and interviewing relevant voices, I'll also discuss whatever else I feel like because, well, this is my podcast. My website, LukeGarity.com, has plenty of blog articles for you to delve into, and I'd love to invite you to find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Let's go. So hey, welcome everybody to the Sacramental Charismatic. I am your host, Luke Garrity. Super excited about this episode. Uh, I'm sitting with, with I mean, arguably one of the most prolific, <laughs> the most influential North American theologians at this moment. When you earn a PhD at Marquette University, you know automatically you are raking in millions of dollars and getting book deals every minute. Jeff, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. And with all that extra money, I managed to have a podcast out of my basement because, you know, that's all I have is a closet in my basement. That's how you roll. Yes, I'm glad to be here coming from Grand Rapids, Michigan. So, has been in the news for all the wrong reasons lately. I was going to say, you Michiganers <laughs> are, you're feisty. That's what I've no, seen. No. For the record, I was born and raised in California, so <laughs> I stick with my credentials. I am just new to Michigan, and I'm quite embarrassed <laughs> these days. My identity uh, is firmly in the West Coast. Yes. Uh, well, that makes sense. Um, so, hey, you uh, actually on a serious level, uh, Jeff, you've written a number of books. Uh, you have a PhD in theology from Marquette on a, on a serious level, and you are also an associate pastor at a vineyard church. Is that yes. an accurate Summary. Hey, why don't you tell us about your books? What books have you, because uh, I think you just put one out that's quite good. We just put one out that I co-wrote with my wife called Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. And it's all about um, how, uh, you know, basically as a pastor, I stopped telling people, this is a big shocker, but I stopped telling people that God loves them because that just did no work in mm. their like spiritual or personal life. It just kind of bounces off people for different reasons. Um, but we kind of threw uh, a bunch of different kind of twists of our own spiritual journey. You know, we just started telling people, uh, like, Hey, God, God likes you. God mm. like wants to be with you. He wants to spend time with you. And when I'd say things like that, people would be curious and they'd want to learn more. And so we kind of just wrote, um, and, and I, as a, as a professor, um, I like redid my, my theology lectures all based around this idea of God with us. And so anyhow, we kind of took the, the big theology ideas and practical life, smashed them together to a pretty popular, um, accessible book. Yeah. That's been, that's been pretty fun. I also have like published my dissertation. I published something mm. with Dr. Uh, David Fitch called prodigal Christianity. So put out a couple of things, you know, so it's been, it's been awesome. fun, I guess. I love writing, but you yeah. don't make, you don't make millions on it unless you're, <laughs> No, Someone you just you just make millions from graduating from Marquette. That's what I was told by Doug Erickson. Oh, right. 
so yeah, actually, uh, we're going to have really fun on this podcast because we have really no plans other than to delve into, um, I think we're going to talk about issues related to ecclesiology, uh, sacramental theology a little bit, and charismatic stuff. Uh, so I'm really excited about that. Uh, I actually would uh, like to know before we jump into this. So my wife and I co-lead uh, a, our church community, and we always jokingly say that co-leading is, uh, well, co-leading is really a, 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 an interesting challenge. Uh, what was it like to write a book with your wife? And uh, how much marriage counseling did did it take? <laughs> yeah. You know, we actually really liked it. Um, we're still married 20 years. We're just celebrating. Uh, I went into it. So I've co I co-wrote an, uh, another book. So I, I know how that road was. Uh, I didn't really look forward to it, but <laughs> I went into it knowing that my wife was the better writer. So like when you already know that from the beginning, she's also a better preacher. Like she's basically better at everything. So mm. I went into that. Um, and so that really helped. And I think like in our life stage, uh, we actually got called us out of a church that we'd been at for 17 years and moved us from Chicago lands to Grand Rapids to, to join a vineyard church, um, right in the middle, we'd written about half that book and then God did all that. So I think like the book was kind of writing, it was like time together. It was kind of our anchor in the midst of all this other chaos. So I think it was actually good for us. Um, mm. but uh, it, it was, it was quite an adventure actually. Uh, and we spent like a whole year kind of writing it in the, in between time. And we figured if we ever write a book again, we just need to take like a three month vacation and do nothing else. Cause mm. we actually enjoyed the process of like working on it together. Um, just well, that's awesome. all the other crazy stuff. So yeah, it was yeah. pretty fun. I'm, she's like, I don't want to do that again. Not for a while, but I'm already thinking of the next book. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, uh, what I like about your book, um, you know, as I got in front of me here on my Kindle. And uh, I love how you really lean into the whole concept of, of God's, I guess what, you know, theologians would talk about pneumatologically, like the whole concept of God dwelling with us, you know, the, the indwelling presence of God. Um, I think moving into that, that future promise of, um, you know, revel, what is the end of revelation where God makes his home with us on the new earth, which is quite different than like, the old school uh, dispensational insert heaven. insert the dispensational disses right now. Uh, you know that old school <laughs> approach where it was kind of like, yeah, we're all gonna you know end up in heaven and and everything just kind of goes away. Um, I, so I just I thought that was really a cool way to approach that question about um, about God's I guess affections for us. That that's just kind of like right. Uh, God wouldn't want to be with us if He didn't like us. That's kind of what I, yeah, exactly. I got that from you. That's exactly it. Um, well, and I know the vineyard talks about this all the time. And, and I think especially kind of a sacramental understanding of reality that the God with us, the closeness of God is super important. Um, but I was raised fundamentalist, dispensationalist, um, and cessationist. Right. So I got all those in there. Whoa. Uh, you know, and so God was like very distant. God was in charge, you know, and at some point he would intervene in history, you know, and do the rapture and then just like really get hardcore. But, you know, otherwise he's kind of like, you know, missing an action and then we will go up to heaven and things like that. And we really wanted to kind of tell the story of the Bible of like, no, like, uh, just as we pray, like your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like the whole point is God's presence is coming down to earth. Mm. Not that we're escaping up to heaven. And yeah. so if that's true 
for prayer, if it's true at the end of things, uh, act, maybe what if the whole Bible was telling us that story all along? And so we talk about the Old Testament and the temple and the tabernacle and Jesus dwelling and how he's, you know, the, took on flesh and tabernacled amongst us and how with uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost that, you know, the church now is the principal place of God's presence. Mm. Uh, and we could talk, you know, talk all about that as God everywhere all the time, you know, the charismatic circles, it's always like, well, if God's with us all the time, then why do we pray at the beginning of our service that the Holy Spirit would come down upon us, right? So this is kind of that, that age old question. Yeah. And, and that, and those are good questions to ask, um, because I think for, um, for those who are too sacramental, uh, if there could be a thing, um, it, it's often just like, well, God's always here. So now we just need to acknowledge that God is here. And then mm. for the Pentecostal charismatics, it's like, well, we have to yearn and we have to, you know, pan yeah, and yeah. we have to seek and we, you know, and then God will show yeah. up in a great measure and then we'll feel it and gold dust yeah. and things. And so how do you, <laughs> and, and I'm kind of like, and you probably are too, tell me what you think, but I want to take both of those and say, those are both right. Uh, yeah. And we have to, we have to live into both those realities without reducing things to one or the other. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's that's kind of like the big challenge is that is keeping that tension, which is part of why I thought it'd be fun to explore in this podcast that that relationship between the sacramental and the charismatic, you know? Um, yeah, because it seems like, um, yeah, I, I always thought about like that prayer, "Come Holy Spirit," which in in charismatic circles is we we always say it's our favorite prayer, you know, <laughs> um, which is which is uh, as you know, it's not something that's just um, akin to the 20, 20th century Pentecostal and charismatic prayer. It's actually kind of an ancient prayer, actually. Uh, but oh, yeah. I always talk to people about how one of the reasons why we pray come Holy Spirit is not because God isn't present with us, but it's because we want to um, acknowledge our desire and dependence for his, his presence and for his activity. And I always think about how uh, Jesus, I think it's in the Gospel of John, where when he's praying, he actually says, I don't pray because you need to know this. I pray for the people that are listening to me. <laughs> so it's like yeah, yeah. that prayer and invita uh, invitational prayer is oftentimes what we need to be reminded of. Like, oh yeah, that's right. That's why we're here. We, we came mm -hmm. to engage. So that's funny. But so let me ask you a couple of questions uh, about, um, I, I thought if it's cool with you, I'd like to ask you some questions about your book a little bit. And, um, yeah. and then we can move into, uh, because as we were talking about planning up to do this, uh, you wrote a paper for the Society of Vineyard Scholars, uh, Society of or Society for, I can't remember, but one of those SVS things, you wrote a paper, I have it right in front of me, and uh, I was reading it, and I was like, oh, this Jeff guy's okay. He's talking about <laughs> sacramental and ecclesiology. Uh, but you wrote a book, uh, this paper called mm. After Hermeneutics on Canonical Sacramental Ecclesial Practices. I thought it might be fun to talk about that a little bit. But before we jump into that, uh, your, your book is, um, is super readable. Um, it, it's very pastoral. It's also rich with a lot of really good theological content. I mean, it's like really kind of the perfect book, I would say, for a popular audience. Or, but not just popular audience. I think theologians, um, like as a, as a pastor theologian, I read it and I was really encouraged. You know, like I felt like my faith personally was, was uh, challenged. How did you you know, get to the point where you said, Hey, we need to write this book. What was the, what was the, I mean, was there an event? Was there like a situation where you kind of hinted at a conversation you've had with people where you don't tell them God loves you because it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> uh, talk about that. Like what, what led up to you doing this and then saying, Hey, honey, well, what do you think? Well, it's one of those things where, 
uh, maybe it's like the frog in the kettle where the temperature changes and you don't notice, but in our ministry and our own prayer practice, we had been involved in what was called uh, like Emmanuel prayer, the manual prayer movement, which some people in the vineyard know. And uh, it's kind of like interactive prayer, interactive journaling and these types of things. And, and we had been, a, Sid started and then she got me involved. We've been a part of this for like 10 years and we had started mm. incorporating certain things um, just about practicing gratitude. It, it's basically all it's in the name, right? Emmanuel. So God with us. It's just, yeah. uh, it started from um, trauma counseling and how people, counselors um, and pastors and therapists uh, were trying to help, you know, counsel people through trauma. Uh, and, and in some kind of therapies, there's like going back to the trauma and trying to like work through the process and things like that. And this group kind of stumbled, stumbled upon kind of this, you know, therapy, which was basically like, uh, you know, bring Jesus back in those memories mm. to the traumatic and ask him what was happening, ask him for his opinion or his understanding or his interpretation of these events. And so it took this kind of dialogical kind of spirituality along with trauma uh, counseling. And so mm. it, it kind of developed out of this. And so we've been practicing that for uh, many years. Uh, and then whenever we'd go off to church conferences or we'd, you know, just be hanging out with other people outside of our church, you know, we'd say things that we say all the time in our church. And then people would just be astounded like, oh, that is so helpful. Or, that makes so much sense. And we had kind of gotten to the point of like, oh, it doesn't everyone think this way. And so the book kind of came out of like, no, not everyone really thinks that God is with them. Like that's mm. not like the first thing that they come to in a situation, whether a joyful one or difficult one. Mm, so we just yeah. felt like we wanted, you know, to bring that uh, before people. And I had been, as I said, I'd kind of been working some theology uh, lectures. I teach uh, at Northern Seminary. And so I had, uh, excuse me, hold on. Those, and I was like the Northern uh, Seminary. The, with, yeah, I, I feel like since the Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary puts the in front of it, it <laughs> sounds a little true. more official. So the, with yeah, the Scott Seminary. McKnight, is that, <clears throat> yes, is that good? That's true. Yeah. It's excellent. So, uh, so I took those lectures. We took kind of, uh, you know, some sermons and things. Uh, and we just started like just crafting this book uh, that kind of walks mm. through the story of the Bible, but also just our kind of experiences. And that's kind of the book came from just our... So it kind of was a development over over just the fact that you are you're constantly engaging in uh, topics related to that, more or less. That's yeah. that's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this then: you, you, you're kind of talking about that uh, question of where is God's presence, and um, you know, like in the you know, I think charismatics would say God's present when the charismatic stuff's happening, <laughs> like we you know, like oh God is here, right. time to heal or speaking tongues, or, you know, we have all these in, in uh, charismatic circles, grace lits or charis charismata happening. Um, and then I just did this uh, podcast with uh, Gisela, uh, the author of The Spirituality of Wine, as I was telling you, and we talked a little bit about an area that I've always been fascinated about is uh, the liminal spaces um, and how in liminality or those places where it, it's like the in-between, um, you know, in our, in our theology of the kingdom, we talk about it being now and not yet, right, all the time. And that word and is a very peculiar word because I had never thought about maybe it having some substance to it. <laughs> you know, like, like what, what's going on with that word and? Um, and that seems like a really, really good, good place to start thinking theologically about God's presence and his activity, you know, like not just in suffering, but uh, in every area of our lives, you know, that there's, um, I've kind of wondered about that because I, as you know, I do a fair amount of fly fishing and I've had uh, opportunities to, you know, I, I guide a bit and I've had people in my boat where 
we're talking and it's like really interesting because it seems as if this, the presence of God is, is there with us as we're having these conversations around the kingdom yeah. and people are asking questions. And I'm like, I had never, I had never thought about the inbreakings of the kingdom in this non-churchy moment, you know? Is while so, you're fishing, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, yeah. you know, just it seems like there's opportunities where people start asking questions and because people are, are, are um, I've had this happen multiple times where they open up to me because I actually think that a lot of pastoring happens um, outside of the church, right? It happens in hair salons and, um, you know, places like that all the time. The, the lady who cuts my hair, we always joke around about that because I call her my pastor, you know, and she's like, yeah, it's true. People tell me everything. But on the river, you know, it's, it's like people have had this happen multiple times where people start opening up, telling me about crazy experiences they've had, really tough, challenging situations. And, and, um, and then, you know, it almost immediately they always ask me, so is this the only thing you do? You just guide full time? And I'm like, well, actually, <laughs> and then, and then I get to do pastoral care and share my faith and whatnot, generally speaking. But, um, so, so what are your thoughts about that? Like when you think about liminality or, or, you know, I guess in sacramental circles, that's kind of a, um, a topic that people talk about liminality or liminal spaces, those, those, those thin places in between the now and the not yet. Have you, have you done much theology or thinking about, you know, God's presence and, and um, how we should think about that in that aspect? So I haven't exactly in those terms, like when you were talking about um, fly fishing, I was immediately thinking, well, all of creation is God's temple. And so yeah. it, it is. So I very much have like that sense of uh, creation. And this is kind of where we start off our book is that uh, this image of like a home, like God's inviting us into his home. And actually all mm -hmm. of creation was supposed to be that home until like <laughs> the home got ruined by yeah. sin. But uh, so creation is that place where uh, God is at work, where God is manifest. Um, and it doesn't have to be like the charismatic signs and wonders, right? It's just you know, mm -hmm. the wonders of fish coming back every year and the wonders of, you know, the water and the, you know, and all the, everything that's happening in the trees and the oaks and how old they are. And, um, just the endure, you know, the, the Job moment of just, uh, you know, well, where were you, where were you when I created all these things? And I think people, um, you know, especially in out in creation, outside the cities that they, they're, uh, confronted by the, those moments of wonder. And so that's creation mm. being outdoors, especially are those liminal spaces. I've been thinking a lot, you know, yeah. about like the wilderness as a, as a literal thing happening to all of us through this lockdown and quarantine and things, but mm -hmm. also as a motif through scripture and just how God uh, encounters Israel in the wilderness, how Jesus is baptized, but also tempted in the wilderness and how there's um, when we're taken out of what we know, then um, we're much more open to something new and something different. And when we're, and so that's what those liminal spaces are, the spaces in yeah. between. Uh, and I think those are like the, 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 that's what I love about like a sacramental imagination is it's always mm. combining ordinary things with like the extraordinary encounter with God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you have bread, you have wine, you have daily staples, you have water, um, right. Fish. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have like the daily <laughs> staples and yet they're like some sort of, you know, gate to the, yet. um, and, and God is present and God's always coming kind of near to us. And so I, that's, yeah. How, I don't that's, know. So I'm thinking no, on the fly. How does that sound? Yeah, I think that sounds really, you know, what's really fascinating to me, actually, uh, just an observation about everybody who I've talked to both on this podcast, but then just in normal everyday conversations who have a sacramental lean, 
uh, my observation is they always have a really good um, theology of creation. Like yeah. always it's, it's so, and I don't even know if they've even thought that through because I, I mean, when I think about my theological education, you know, there's a little bit of creation theology there, but it's kind of like we skip over that. But because of the robustness of sacramental theology, it always leads us to see um, grace in everyday normative things, um, especially in creation. And that's, which is interesting because I think, and this is why I think the charismatic tradition needs more sacramental theology because A, it is sacramental by the very fact that it's pneumatological, that's first. But then B, I think it would actually help strengthen a lot of our um, of our theology in other places too, because that's why it's always, I mean, we, I just talked about this with Chris Green, how it's baff, it baffles me that Pentecostals and Charismatics lean into dispensational theology. And that's why they have this, this real low appreciation for creation oftentimes. Like who cares, it's going to all burn up. What's the point? You know, we're going to get raptured anyway. Antichrist is here. Right. Mark of the beast. Right. COVID-19. If you get the, <laughs> it's the vaccine, is it? Whatever craziness is being, um, being shared. So that's, that's uh, been really kind of an interesting observation about it. Did you, so at Marquette though, um, from what I understand, uh, as a Catholic university, I don't know how Thomistic it is, um, but it, would you say that um, a lot of your theology of creation and maybe even natural law, was that a pretty big part of your shaping there? It actually happened beforehand, kind of on accident. So in seminary, I went to Trinity International University or TEDS, TEDS, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I have my evangelical credentials well in hand. You do. Uh, And, and, um, but I took a class, um, on Augustine or Augustine, both ways are correct. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, I took a class with him and, uh, study him not with him. That would be different. (laughs) That was awkward. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it was really reading through, you know, just some some of his works and just understanding like the goodness, like truly the goodness of creation and how God, you know, made all things good and really like thinking through what does that mean uh, really started me kind of on the sacramental path. And it kind of rehabilitated that dispensationalist kind of framework of like, no, God didn't make all this so he could destroy it. Uh, Read the text a little bit better. Like he delights in Mm. his creation and he's going to be renewing all things in heaven and earth. You know, heaven, yeah. heaven is going to come down to earth. Like that's kind of the trajectory of this whole thing. And so it was actually earlier than that, that I really got, got on the sacramental path. And I think um, for me, I kind of had moved uh, growing up like fundamentalist, you know, an evangelical and in college, I studied at the same time, I studied postmodern philosophy uh, and I studied a lot of like apologetics, like C.S. Lewis, Francis Schaeffer, and a bunch of these. So I had these two things kind of going on in my mind. Mm. Um, and leaving college, and then I had a year off, got married, and then we went to seminary. And in my mind, I kind of had this revolution of the best apologetic for the gospel is not these arguments that are intellectual. It's the life of the church, life of the local church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I had already kind of moved to a much more robust ecclesiology, which at most evangelicals and, and a lot of charismatics don't have. Right. And so moving into a more robust ecclesiology. And then with that was actually a more robust kind of sacramental understanding that we don't just take this bread and think about how Jesus suffered for us, confess our sins again, you know, as if it was like mm-hmm. a, an edible flannel graph. That's kind of how I was raised. Like communion is edible flannel graph. You just remember this object lesson. <laughs> um, and Jesus knew that we're stupid. So if we had something to hold, we'd be able to like think about his death and suffering a little bit yeah. more. And so, uh, and then moving from that to, no, this is my body and blood. This is food for the journey. This is the bread from heaven. You know, this mm-hmm. is 
This is me. This is me becoming you and you becoming me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's hilarious. Uh, so you said it, you said that charismatics and a lot of evangelicals have a less than thought out or articulated, um, sense of ecclesiology. So I want to talk to you about your paper yeah. because I think in this paper here, you, uh, you kind of raised some, some really good questions, uh, about, about ecclesial practices, which obviously indicates that you're thinking about the church. And that's actually one thing I really appreciate about you, Jeff, is um, when, I, when I've talked to you, when I've, when I've uh, read you, when I've, I've just seen your, your presence, there's always, um, there's always this, this, really thing that I, this thing I really appreciate is this one foot in the church and then one, church, one foot in the theological world. Like you're doing, I think you're doing really great theology on that. Um, but, uh, you know, when it comes to your, your thoughts on, on ecclesiology and hermeneutics and the, you know, the, the sacramental tradition, uh, if you wouldn't mind, how would you, how would you, I guess, summarize kind of the argument of your paper right here? Because I think your paper has some really great, great stuff. So, uh, yeah, the paper kind of came out. I started off by talking about, um, an argument I had with my dad or a discussion, uh, about like the paper is really kind of a, a, a trajectory of my own theological progression where you, I moved from kind of the evangelical fundamentalism that I was mm -hmm. raised in, which kind of understood biblical authority as, you know, number one and inerrancy as kind of the defense of that authority. And so you have the text uh, and then yeah. I kind of moved from there, you know, I'd studied postmodern uh, philosophy. Uh, I had, you know, encountered some kind of uh, post post-liberal kind of theologies you know, in seminary, you know, and so mm -hmm. I moved to, well, actually it's like the church, the ecclesial body is the place, you know, it's that the community is discerning how to interpret yeah. these texts. Uh, and so it's, it's the community and the tradition and the rule of faith and all these things that help us understand and read the text. You can't just read the text and affirm inerrancy mm -hmm. uh, by yourself as an individual, you need a whole church to do that. So I'd kind of made that turn, uh, but this paper kind of came from the fact, well, you kind of need one more thing because there was this kind of lively theological debate, you know, that I had encountered in seminary and my doctoral work, which is, mm -hmm. well, which one comes first? Is it the text or is it the church? Is it the canon yeah. or is it the ecclesia? Right. So you get these kind of, you know, the Protestants and evangelicals really want to say, well, the text is first and, you know, and others like Catholic and post-liberal and others will say, well, you know, it's the church. Like you just can't get away from these things. Yeah. And I, uh, and so, and for me, that often reflects kind of like a, an either or kind of mentality, which is, well, it's either God's doing all the work and we just submit to it or we're doing all the work and then we kind of sneak in God later, right? Which mm. happens. So certainly, you know, theology is anthropology. Sometimes it can just be reduced to whatever we're talking about. And there's lots of theologians who act that way. So we don't have to get into that unless you want to, because it's your show. <laughs> but uh, so, but I felt like, is there a way to mediate between these two? And I was thinking, well, actually the sacraments, especially, uh, communion or the Eucharist, uh, kind of mediate scripture, reading of scripture and the church itself. And you get this in the road to Emmaus, uh, yeah. which is that Jesus is walking down the dejected, you know, disciples, uh, Jesus plays a little coy, you know, like, Oh, what happened? Why are you guys so upset? And, you know, then they talk and then it says Jesus, uh, you know, starting with Moses and the prophets, like opened, you know, scriptures to them. Yeah. But the text says clearly that they didn't get it. And so just having Jesus talk about the whole trajectory of the Bible was not enough. Shocker, right? So just mm -hmm. having the text before us is not enough. Um, it's because the, the, the road to Mass says clearly their eyes were not open. They did not understand what was happening. Yeah. And it wasn't until 
they uh, tell Jesus, you know, kind of broke bread with mm -hmm. them that then immediately their eyes were opened. And so yeah. it took like that, that sacramental practice to be able to make the reading of the Bible understandable. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think like the vineyard talks about this quite a bit, I think, uh, and you know better than I, but like John Wimber would say, well, the meat is in the street. Yeah. And we talk about Bible studies. We want to have meat. People would be like, where's the Bible study? Where's the meaty Bible study? Where we can get into the meat of the text. And you'd be like, the meat is in the street. The meat is in doing. Like if you're not yeah. doing the things, then why are mm -hmm. we just studying them? And I think the sacraments kind of really help us kind of get that. So the church and the Bible kind of need to be experienced through the sacraments around the table. Yeah, that's great. I mean, because it is interesting how Luke, who, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it seem really clear in my reading of Luke 24, it seems really clear that there's more to it than just the Bible story being taught there, right? Like, yeah, there's a, there's a, uh, a obviously, a, you know, I think the sacramental folks, we see something there and we're like, hey, this needs to be paid attention to, which, you know, growing up in the evangelical stream, even as a charismatic, I just, I, um, I've said this numerous times, you know, I just, I didn't even know communion was a thing really until, um, much later in life when I started actually doing some theology and thinking a little bit more about, about what you see all over the Bible. Um, well, let me, let me, um, let me kind of get into this, this, uh, you're talking a little bit about, um, I guess the canonical and the text and whatnot, and you interact with Van Hooser quite a bit who, um, you know, Van Hooser is one of those guys that, for me, I, he's a brilliant systematic theologian. He's written so much that I found really helpful. I've said numerous times, and I think we, you and I were talking about this, how I'm like, I am an inerrantist if it's Van Hooser's type of inerrancy. Like he, he does a really good yeah. job of, of explaining it. Um, but you also critique him a little bit uh, in, this, in this paper. Um, what would be your, your primary critique to his approach to the text and to the relationship between the church? Well, at the time when I wrote it, I'd say the primary critique was what I'd call like the, the priestly category. If I was to write it now, it'd be more like the charismatic care category. But mm -hmm. in, in his framework, he wants to put all authority on the side of God through the text, uh, kind of against the church. And he uses those words like against, like God yeah. speaks against the church through the text as a corrective kind of way, right? So this is part of the reformed kind of uh, yeah. understanding is that the church can be corrupt, the church is fallible. And so God has to speak against the church through the text. And so he kind of, he really links the, the activity of the text with the prophetic kind of office in scripture. And he talks about De Deuteronomy and other places mm -hmm. in scripture. Uh, and so he, he says, you know, this is like the scripture should be understood through the prophetic office. Um, and And I think that, you know, and in one sense, I say that's true. It's just incomplete. Like he's not telling the whole story. Because what about the priestly office? Like there's the offices in the Old and the New Testament. And frankly, the priestly office is the, well, I guess the prophetic is given to the whole church too. But the priestly office is the more mediate, mediatory one. It's the one that mm -hmm. brings God's presence to the people and, and the people into God's presence. Uh, and so why can't scripture function that way? Uh, mm -hmm. Which I think is the more charismatic. I, I would always say that the Holy Spirit was kind of, you know, at work in the temple and the glory of God on the temple and all these things. So yeah. the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is really just the mediation of God's presence in the material world. And so that was my criticism is like, sure, like the prophetic, like sometimes the, the word has to speak against the church, but the word uh, and the temple um, 
is is something that God has given us. And so what about this priestly office? And so I kind of leave it as a question lingering, like, you know, mm -hmm. what would your theory of scripture mean if it was more like a priest instead of like a prophet? Uh, and so that's where I think like the sacramental comes in where the priest with the robes and, you know, and like the mm -hmm. vestments and like in the Old Testament, like all that stuff, there's the sacramental kind of mediation and reality. I think uh, too, I've done a lot more work now with like Torah and the temple and I okay. think Protestants focus on the idea of Torah, like God's word, God's law is given and it's meant to be obeyed. Um, yeah. Rules and, and regulations, right? Yeah. <laughs> Check the box. And most Protestants kind of ignore the temple uh, as like dead religion and the thing that Jesus mm -hmm. was against. Um, but really in the Old Testament, like the temple and the Torah work together. Uh, yeah. So I think like Van Hooser and a lot of Protestant views of scripture is much too Torah understanding and not enough mm. temple. Like okay. temples where God dwells, it's where his presence is, it's where he's manifest. And the Torah is just there to help make sure that his manifest presence continues. Mm. So the Torah really <laughs> serves the temple in my view. That's that's interesting. I, I, I really I uh, I really appreciated that about that paper. Um which I had to, you know, reread it recently because I was like, oh yeah, I I remember this now. This was like good stuff. Um what what would you say about uh, I mean, is the charismatic, so it seems like uh, the sacramental stream generally really leans into a Lectio Divina type of reading of the Bible. Like we love to do that um, in the sacramental stream. In fact, you know, any, any spiritual director I've ever worked with or any of the, uh, the folks who are in the spiritual formative um, stream, which is so coupled with uh, the sacramental folks, um, seem to be leaning into that. Um, and in yet it doesn't replace the grammatical historical reading like the author's intention of the bible still matters mm -hmm. um do you do you feel like um what what's the way to i guess to get around that cuz i mean no matter what there always seems to be a tension between what the bible said and meant then and then you know that the thistleton horizon jump right to like oh, what yeah, it means wow. today and i've asked like i had steve bernhope on here who's you know um, he's a, he specializes in hermeneutics in many ways around the atonement and he talks about how there's a difference between meaning and meaningfulness and we have to keep those things in mind which i think was a really helpful way to think about this this question but for you how have you kind of thought as a theologian and correct me if i'm wrong but as a theologian not a biblical scholar Right. There is, there is a difference between those disciplines, but but still sure. wanting to maintain um, a sense of of honoring the authority of the Bible, recognizing it's it's it had an intention behind it when the authors wrote it. And yet um, wanting to see the, the Bible as a space where the spirit can illuminate and and help us see um, the beauty of of the kingdom and the beauty of living in that that ethic like what how, how have you thought about that in your own life and then maybe what would be your your advice to people listening listen into this or your students yeah that's a good question it's particularly difficult like with the old testament you know what do we do with you know judges or joshua and the violence in the old testament um well some people just say pretend that god didn't really want you to think that <laughs> right yeah, isn't that yeah. like an so argument now <laughs> Yes. Well, so I, I guess for me, I, I just start with, are we asking the questions that, that, you know, the Bible is trying to ask and answer mm. and let's stay with those uh, and then kind of move to our questions. Right. Mm. So when it comes to like Genesis three um, and the fall, 
a lot of people end or read the rest of the Bible with, well, the question like, well, where, what is God going to do about sin? Like we screwed up. We brought sin in the world. We broke his law. We're rebels. Like however you want to mm -hmm. fill that out. So what's God going to do about that? Well, he's going to punish sin, but he doesn't, but he loves us. So he's going to punish his son, uh, you know, right. <laughs> so, so you get all these different answers and, and everybody talks that way, of course. And yeah. uh, so I try to say, well, I, I don't believe that is actually the question that ancient readers would have asked after they had read the first three chapters of the Bible. They mm. read about God's creation, humanity made in God's image, uh, chapter two, placed in a garden as God's idols, as, as I talk about it, uh, not mm -hmm. just myself, but a lot of people just talk about yeah. like, humanity is actually the, made in the, they're the idols of God. Yeah. So that's why, that's why we're commanded not to make idols of God in the old Testament, not just because God's invisible and ineffable and you can't make an image, but actually, because God did that already. He, he made that the idol that he wanted, which was all of humanity. So then mm -hmm. you get to chapter three um, and you know, the idols ruined and then they're exiled uh, and where are they exiled from or well, they actually there. They lost God's presence is the main question that I always ask that I think biblical of ancient biblical readers would have asked, well, where's God's presence now? We've lost mm -hmm. God's presence. And that gets mm -hmm. answered at the end of the book of Exodus uh, and then Leviticus and all these types of things, which is, well, God's presence now dwells in, with the people of Israel through the temple, like God's presence is back. And and with it all, the whole blessing to all the nations and things. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I would want to be asking people, how is God's, how is access to God's presence being hindered or helped as we read the old Testament and the new Testament, um, where is God's presence being manifest? How is it being manifest? Are people recognizing it? Are they not recognizing it? What does it mean that, that God shows up? How is God messing with these ideas of what it means? Right? So by the time you get to Elijah, you know, you have the wind and you have the storm and you have the lightning, but then you have the whisper, right? So God's, you know, he shows up as a whisper as much as a, as a fiery mountain. So those are the, the questions I'm always wanting to ask and wanting people to ask. Mm -hmm rather than does this fit with the moral sentiments that I have as an enlightened Westerner about what would or would <laughs> not be acceptable behavior by an ancient people to their enemies, mm. which are, and asking that eventually is not wrong. Uh, but if you start with that kind of question, uh, yeah. or if you start with, you know, why did God, you know, like make a sacrifice of animals or why, uh, you know, why, why was Jesus mean to the Syro Syrophoenician woman? Like, wasn't he being, you know, ethnocentric or you know it's like maybe but that's probably not the first question we should ask yeah um so i don't know i don't think i've helped answer your question well, at all but those are kind of my rambling no i think right so now. so what, what i hear you saying is uh it, you are arguing for what i would say is uh, i guess the way i think about it is a theological reading of scripture which yes. um yeah. you know because i think God's the lectio Di yeah the lectio divina model which because I, I guess i'm I, what i'm currently where i'm at currently which may change but i'm at a point where i think there's all these different ways of reading the bible that have different strengths different weaknesses and they're all kind of helpful at times um and we should it's almost like bible translations like i use my greek and my hebrew <clears throat> but i also really find the new living translation at times you know the the niv the there's all yeah, well, I didn't say that. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, you know, th th these translations can be helpful to understanding um, the, uh, I guess, the the big picture. But with the with a theological reading of scripture, um, it seems like yeah, you have um, you have in the forefront some some uh, understanding though of the character of God, 
right? Like there's, there's some things that are kind of leading your, your um, reading of the Bible. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I go, um, I'm much more of like a Christocentric kind of reader of scripture. So um, certainly there's a lot going on in the old Testament, but we have to read that all through Jesus as the fullness of the revelation of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, cause I know a lot of people of more like reformed or certain like conservative angles will say, well, we just kind of read the whole Bible in the same fashion and let all yeah. things interpret other things. And I'm much more of the, well, no, Christ is the, the interpretive key for everything. Yeah. Uh, and so those things that we find troubling or confusing in the old or the new Testament have to be read through the clear aspects of God's character revealed in Christ. Mm. So that's kind of my hermeneutic key. Um, so let me ask you, uh, what's the difference in your understanding between a Christological and a Christotelos reading? Or are they essentially <laughs> the same? I, well, I don't know. I need you to define those terms, a Christocentric or a Christo... Well, yeah, like the Christocentric or the redemptive reading. I think I actually think that is a very reformed, common reformed way of reading the Bible, whether or not, you know, they don't, I wouldn't say all reformed theologian, theologians do it consistently. And they sometimes make the Christ, the Christ of their reading very much like Calvin. <laughs> that might be a yeah. mean way to say it, but, but I also am somewhat reformed, so it's okay. Uh, but a Christo tell us, I'm thinking like in the earlier uh, Peter N's work, um, when he, you know, when he was teaching at Westminster and some of the arguments he had was more about, um, I think it was for my understanding, more of a eschatological consummation Jesus, where it was like the end of thing, because you can't just take the Jesus of the Gospels, which I think a lot of times a Christological reading does through the Sermon on the Mount, for instance. You know, I think like the Anabaptist tradition, every Anabaptist yeah. I know whom I love is always like, well, in Matthew five through seven, you know, it's like, okay, well, yeah. well what about what about the Jesus of Revelation? I, I have a hard time sometimes reconciling the Jesus of Revelation with the Sermon on the Mount Jesus. Um, you know, just in my own, you know, as I've wrestled with those those differences, and I understand the apocalyptic literature and the genres and all that stuff, but I, I think the Christological Christological versus the Crystal Telos, it seems like. Um, I guess I I kind of want them to be the be incorporated, but it seems like a lot of the time it's like pitting the Jesus of the Gospels with the Jesus of the es- uh, the of the you know the end. I guess I don't know if that mm-hmm. that's that's my very you know surface the level reading of it. I don't know if you've read much of Peter Enns uh, in his yeah, earlier. Yeah, a little bit. I, I think with like the Anabaptists and some progressive readings, yeah, you kind of like choose the Jesus that you want and then you just kind of like discard all the other parts of scripture that don't kind of fit mm. with that. And so I'm much too still evangelical or even biblicist, you know, for that. Like I want to read the whole Bible well. Uh, you, heard here, you heard it here, folks. You heard it here, folks. He said I'm, he's a biblicist. Whatever that means. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm still okay with it. But so I still have that kind of like sense of like, well, who, I, I, you know, this comes from like probably my certain reformed and fundamentalist training, but you know, like, can I really judge God? Like, am I really going to do mm-hmm. that? And I think, you know, I still want to have that kind of humility when I read the, even troubling Old Testament passages, like, um, do I really know better? And, and I, mm. so, so I kind of read it. So my current kind of hermeneutical method is, and I guess it's probably like a, a progressive revelation kind of understanding, mm-hmm. but it, it kind of comes through like, well, how do people learn things at all? Um, or how, especially do you learn language? Um, uh, 
well, you you kind of learn language in in the in the small parts, the words, uh, you know, sounds and things like that, and then you learn the grammar and you learn how to string things together, uh, and then you become fluent in in the sense of you you like spontaneously can do and speak the language. Yeah. So I kind of think of uh, the early Old Testament, especially with the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments, as basically God giving kind of the ABCs. And the basic words, you know, these are the 10 words. They're not really 10 commandments of the 10 words. Like God's just giving Israel after the fall, after the tree of good and evil, like people don't know what good and bad is. Like they just mm -hmm. don't. And so God who is good needs to start like teaching at least somebody, someone in the human race, like what is good <laughs> and what is bad. Yeah. And he creates like a group of people and says, well, these are the words and you're going to start doing this. Uh, and then the prophets come along. And they're kind of like the grammar and they say, well, you got the words right, but you're kind of putting them together in like a pretty wonky way. Like just because you're doing the sacrifices, but you're abusing hmm. the poor, like that's not what these words are supposed to be doing for us. So like they kind of come and they're, you know, they're like the teacher that's correcting the bad grammar. You know, I got hmm. good grammar. And, uh, but then G like Jesus is, he comes as the truly like the fluent speaker. Like you never really learn a language until you learn it from someone who knows it fluently and then yeah. teach it to you. And so I feel like the coming of Jesus is the fluent speaker, which means the stuff you learned beforehand aren't necessarily wrong. Um, even And some of the stories in the Old Testament aren't wrong, but they're not exactly right either. And so they're not mm -hmm. like on the same level as we should understand kind of the revelation back to the theological language, the revelation of the fluent speaker of, of good and evil and of love. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of, those. that's kind of like a progressive trajectory educational mm -hmm. developmental view, I guess, but that's yeah. how, that's my framework right now for the, yeah, I think, I, I think that makes sense. I, I always kind of wonder, um, not to, I, I mean, that's a really, I'm, I'm partial, extremely partial to that because I like for me, TIS or the theological interpretation of scripture movement, um, has a lot of things that I love about it. I mean, I, I would say I, I, I you know, I yeah. probably would do most of my church stuff as a as a, theolo a theological thinker, theological reader, theological, I do pastoral preaching. I'm, I'm definitely like, um, I, I don't know what I would call it, but it's like my homiletical model. You know, when it comes to like expository or textual, I'm definitely a theological preacher type person. But I think the challenge has always been, um, you know, with somebody new. Like, you know, there's regularly new people coming into our church community that have no church background. Have, you know, or if they do, it was like, you know, Sunday school for a, you know twinkle in their grandma's eye before she passed right. away or something, you know? So it's yeah. like getting people up to speed to be able to read the Bible in that way. Um, you know, it's part of discipleship, obviously, but it's like, you, there's a lot there, right? Because reading it through the lens of Jesus, um, some would assume, so it doesn't assume it just takes work to get to, which isn't a bad thing. It just, it's, it's sometimes, I guess the challenge is getting people there without, you know, cause you and I, like we've had a fair amount of theological training and, um, you know, we've had opportunities to like have people explain these things to us, you know, but I always think about right. a stay at home dad. Who's like, man, I just, I just got off drugs and I'm trying to like, where do I start in the Bible? You know? And I'm like, well, I always start them in, in, uh, the gospel of Mark myself. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Mark yeah, is short, too. sweet, <laughs> 16 chapters. It's the highlight reel of, uh, of all those things. Well, man, I, I, I got a couple more questions for you. Uh, we don't have a lot of time. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, cause so this means no, you're going to have to be on multiple op uh, multiple episodes obviously well i already begged you to like get on when i saw you like post this somewhere for the first time i was like that's a great topic can i get on please please i was like me? coach yes coach, let me play. <laughs> yes you can uh okay so who is 
who is your favorite patristic theologian and why? And you can't say Augustine, Augustine, Augustini. I don't know how to pronounce it. I've been corrected well, so many my times. Favorite, he is like the one I studied. I did half my dissertation on him. So well, yeah, you had to. You were at Marquette. I was. I've heard it's a requirement when you go to Marquette. You have to write something on pretty Augustine. Much. Pretty yeah. well. So there's a pretty famous Augustinian scholar, uh, and he hated having me in the class because I was from the systematic department, and he's convinced that all <laughs> systematic theologians just use Augustine improperly. So that was kind of <laughs> that actually might be. Travail. He might have a fair he's case. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's kind of right. Everybody claims him. Just that's my when I when I do the. Uh, when I do the Catholic evangelical dialogue every year, it's always, it always cracks me up about how the Protestant, all the evangelicals are like appealing to Augustine and then all the Catholics are too. And it's, it's just like, yeah, okay, everybody. well, someone's reading so, them wrong. I, it's probably cliche, but uh, I like Athanasius on the incarnation is just like so fundamental for me. At, you are know. you serious? That's oh, mine. Yeah. That's my pick, that's man. Like one of the, that's like one of the best, you know, the way he just talks about, um, like why was the son sent rather than the father mm. and the spirit and uh, yes fittingness and so i tried i in my in my courses you know I, I have people read that just to kind of be like let's get outside all the ways you talk about all this stuff and just read someone else and just kind of like yeah. go line by line and be like well, see why he's, mm. why is he talking like this like this is a totally different frame of reference like so mm -hmm. so that's genius probably, i mean he's he's genius yeah yeah i i try to name so my we had my wife and i had three daughters in a row and then we finally were going to have a son. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is my moment. So my wife was like, well, what do you think we should name him? And I said, Athanasius, we'll call him Athan for short. I was, I was, and then, Ethan. you know, yeah, I was like, we can call him Athan for short. And, uh, but every friend of ours said, your child will be made fun of forever. And I was like, he's going to go against the world, just like his former predecessor he will but, be exiled at least three times yeah. <laughs> but i lost so we named him surreal so that's <laughs> i got a little bit oh, of a that's, yeah, yeah that's close <laughs> yeah, that's okay so that's your that's your go-to patristic for now for now okay yes. cool cool so yeah. the next era which you know i wanted oh, to skip right to the reformation but i felt like oh that's kind of skipping about a thousand years of church history so who's who's uh, up there aquinas yeah. who's your who's your guy this is where I'm pretty rusty in the ancient kind of church. I mean, I, I love like um, all the spiritual classics is probably what I'm more familiar with. Mm. So Teresa of Avila, I always say her name wrong, you know, St. John of the Cross. So I'm more of like yeah. familiar with those pieces um, and found, you know, imitation of Christ. So I don't know, does that count or is that a cop out? Yeah, I'll let you. Well, you mean, otherwise, I'll just say like Aquinas, you know, like I'm, you're not I, a church I'm, historian guy, so it's no, okay. Not. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm not, I mean, and I don't know if this goes with the sacramental kind of imagination, but I'm not one of those to be like philosophy and metaphysics and like that's the downfall of the church. Like, I'm like, mm -hmm. eh, like, I'm down with all that stuff. Like, let's talk metaphysics, like, you know, yeah. So I love most of the medieval, like, Neoplatonism and. Oh, cool. You know, all that stuff. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm fine with it. I know people hate it, but I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Okay. Well, Reformation. Who, who's your lady or who's your guy? Oh, yeah. I don't know. I read a lot of Calvin, <laughs> but I wouldn't say there's someone that I'm just regularly <laughs> reading. Uh, this is what a great response. Right I don't know. I, I, I read so, a lot of Calvin. <laughs> I, I read Calvin and Luther. Um, 
you know, I actually read quite a bit of Jonathan Edwards, you know, I had that like reformed moment in, in college. And so, yeah. So, yeah. So I, yeah, it, it's kind of weird. Cause like for me, people have asked me this, who's your favorite theologian? And I was like, I don't know. Like NT, right. I, I don't know. Like I read a lot of, the, I just read <laughs> a lot of, a lot of people. So, and I don't, I know like you're very partial to like Moltmann and, um, so I'm just all, I'm all over the place right now. I've spent like a year and a half just studying a lot of like neuroscience. Like I'm just on this neuroscience brain attachment theory, like kick reading in my field. <laughs> so, mm. so that's what I'm reading. If that's on your question, what are you reading right now? Ah, uh, yeah. I, uh, so sure. And- let, let, let's, let's ask this question. Why are you reading neuroscience <laughs> right now? That's, I mean, you're a theologian, man. Stay in your lane. Stay in your lane, bro. Yeah, well, so this, so the lane for a theologian is anything you want it to be. So that's what I, so I forget, I think it was Douglas Hall. That's like, well, see, when you're a systematic theologian, that's actually yeah, quite true. I, I wrote my dissertation in constructive theology, so it's even more true. So I can literally talk about whatever I want. And as long as I put a footnote. Building? I, I've done that before. <laughs> Well, so it started because this book that we wrote and the Emmanuel Prayer Movement, they've actually, this whole movement um, with this guy, Jim Wilder and uh, Carl Lehman and a couple others, they've mm-hmm. just been doing a lot of like Christian spiritual formation and coupling it with neuroscience. Uh, and I actually am reviewing a book right now about kind of updating Dallas Willard's spiritual formation model with mm-hmm. neuroscience. And, um, and so this movement was basically like, well, how do we connect with God? if we don't know how to connect with ourselves, like if we don't know how, if we're not relational people, then we won't be able to connect to a relational God. And so, and this kind of comes up in our book uh, around the theme of joy and gratitude and kind of what joy and gratitude mm. do in our brains to kind of help us um, connect with people. So there's all sorts mm. of like, so, so I'm studying brain science because it's really the science of how has God made us to connect with other people. Um, and so a lot of what, kind of like my current pastoral work is um, is people have a threshold or a capacity, a spiritual capacity that is only as big as what their actual relational capacity is. And relational capacities aren't built by reading the Bible more and praying, praying more and entering into spiritual practices. Like those are all good, but people are mm. going to get frustrated at some point because those spiritual practices aren't being coupled with relational practices of just connecting with their own body of being aware of their own emotions, uh, but then also knowing how to connect with other people in appropriate ways. Uh, and so that, that's kind of, that's why I'm studying a lot of brain sciences just to kind of- well, that's like, a, that, 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 that sounds that really similar to, um, uh, there's a book that came out, I think it was called Wired for Intimacy or Wired Toward Intimacy. And it was about memory, uh, serves me correct, that was the name of it, but it was about how uh, pornography actually neurologically hijacks the brain um, and, and there's all the science behind it about how it, it actually prevents mm-hmm. people from being able to have intimacy, which yeah, I think yeah. pastorally, so yeah, I've seen, I've seen that, you know, and it's, um, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you mentioned Dallas Willard though, and uh, maybe we can end on this cause I, this will be con- controversial. Um, <laughs> maybe so we agree on everything though. So this will probably that is, that's true. Well, it won't be controversial for you and I, it'll just be no. everybody else. Um, you'll lose your job. I'll get fired from the church. I mean, you know, but Dallas Willard, I like, I love reading Dallas Willard. Um, I find him really stimulating. Um, he, but my observation is that a lot of people who are 
not not his students like he's had obviously like uh, uh what is it brian smith uh, who wrote the good and beautiful god he's had a number of people who have been really influenced by him who studied underneath him did a lot of work with him those folks that's the, i'm not a, all accusing them but like the normal common MDiv student or pastor or, you know, disciple follower of Jesus person who really gets into Dallas Willard. My observation is that many of them get stuck in the spiritual formative theory, like spiritual formation as a, as a theory is like, is really what they're all about. And um, I mean, this has happened so many times where I just kind of like, when someone tells me they like Dallas Willard, this is terrible. I'm admitting it right now. But my first assumption is that they probably do not do any kingdom things. They're just going to talk about how important it is to be talking about Dallas Willard and spiritual formation. Um, I don't know if you've seen that, but if you have, or if you rule of life and I do Lectio Divina and I'm Mm -hmm. practicing Sabbath. Yeah. And all those things are are good. I I think so. Like what I was talking about. Why is that? I mean, have you seen that? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. I I think one of the, the problems, especially is that movement has been plagued by um, not because this is what they were saying, but this is kind of what happens is uh, they're plagued by individualism. It doesn't have a super strong ecclesiology because mm. um, these are yeah. like things you can do by yourself, um, mm-hmm. which is funny because they were never practiced by themselves. Like if you go to monks yeah. and monasteries and the ascetic movement, like it was always people together. But isn't, uh, isn't that the uh, evangelical way? I mean, it seems like when right. evangelicals discover Catholic things, Catholicity, and they discover like, oh, this is a great thing. Let's bring it back to our personal individualistic um, approach to spirituality and it'll enhance your walk with Jesus or your relation, your personal relationship with Christ. So that's, I mean, that's a thing. I was at a conference this probably like 20 years ago and this Eastern Orthodox theologian was like, it's kind of like, you know, taking these spiritual practices for evangelicals is like kind of like taking a beautiful flower and cutting it and putting it in a vase with water. It's like, it'll look pretty for a couple of days, but it's still going to die. It's like, if you're not rooted in like the whole ecclesiology, even the mystical traditions of mm. where these things came from, it, it'll probably help your life for a little bit, but it's not going to, like, you're going to kind of plateau or you're going to get stuck. And, and so oh, I, yeah, man. I think that happens for quite a bit, I think. Um, but, and that's where like Jim Wilder and others uh, are kind of criticizing the spiritual formation movement is they're saying, unless there's also relational growth um you these things are going to fade after a little while like unless you're becoming like better and he basically says unless mm. you're learning how to love your enemies at the same time as doing spiritual practices it's going to like stop like you're just going to cut wow. a wall because unless you know how to like engage with people that you don't want to engage with unless you know how to get over whatever happens in your heart and it's not just your heart it's actually your body when you see someone that you view as an enemy, your body actually gets into fight or flight mode, right? Mm. Your brain, your brain chemistry changes, right? Until you know how to deal with that, which Jesus told you how to deal with that, right? Yeah. Um, it's an enemy love kind of commandments. It's like, if you're not doing that work, then your body literally is going to stand in the way of your spiritual growth, uh, mm. your, your physical reaction. So, so those are some wow. of the things that I'm kind of like pressing into and, but it also goes oh, back great. to the sacramental uh, kind of imagination is that our material reality of our brains and our bodies has influence and impact on our spiritual practices and lives, uh, just yeah. like ordinary bread and water and wine and things like that. Right. So all these things mm. matter matters. Um, so that's great. I, uh, I was actually at a coffee shop one time, you know, sitting there and I was, I was reading, um, that through one our kind time, of the one time you were at a the one time shop. I was there. Uh, I was reading Alexander Schmimon's um, yeah. is for the life of the world. 
And uh, I was rereading it because I was thinking about a section uh, where he talked about reality. Um, it's a, a sacramental reality. And it's kind of funny because he's doing the whole, yeah, the Catholics are over here trying, the Roman Catholics are trying to figure out like how transubstantiation is, you know, metaphysically, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, eh. you know, it, it's kind of like, it's just really kind of a cool way he, he gets around the idea of reality. But I was reading that and uh, I noticed across for me was a, a uh, Greek, uh, an Eastern, Eastern Orthodox priest. I mean, it was the weirdest thing. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, Oh, and uh, so he saw what I was reading. And he just said, Oh, what are you reading? You know? And I told him and we started talking and uh, he was originally from Southern California. So he was very familiar with the vineyard movement. He was like, Oh, I, I know about John Wimber. And I was like, Oh, cool. Oh, you know? Wow. And I, yeah, so I said, I said something uh, along the lines of, yeah, I'm actually kind of working on, you know, developing more, more more sacramental theology in the vineyard and and he his literal response to me was oh that's cute (laughs) (laughs) and it was like i mean i just started laughing because it was like only an orthodox priest would say that you know like it was just the best response ever and then he kind of chuckled and was like and then but he but he essentially said the same thing where he you know he said the danger of of um, borrowing, you know, from all these different traditions is if we don't have a really good sense of ecclesiology, it's almost, you know, it's, it's like, in his words, cute. It's, oh, nice try. Pinch the cheek. I mean, it was like getting spanked by my grandpa. It was really awesome. So it's really, really good. (laughs) So you would, uh, you would say basically um, in the sacramental, the spiritual formation movements on, on those things, the charismatic tradition, we need to really do a lot more um, theological work and, and not just do the work, but also embody it in regard to ecclesiology. Like that's, that's our, our homework. Well, yeah, that's why, again, why I was begging to be on this podcast is like the sacramental charismatic. That's what I feel like both traditions need each other to kind of move forward in a healthy way. And so I think that's Mm. yeah, super, super exciting. It's not so much like a balance a balancing between the two of them, but just kind of like a mm-hmm. full, full speed ahead on both. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of it like, you know, I, th- I think it was J.I. Packer once who said balance is actually like, like a lot of times think people think balance is 50% of this and 50% of that, but it's like uh, better to think about things as the incarnation, you know, a hundred percent God, a hundred percent human, you know, yeah, um, man, like it's been a huge pleasure to have you on. Um, I'm going to yeah, let you, fun. I'm going to leave you with the last word, sign us off or something, but, I, I, but I'd love to have you on again. Um, and folks, if you're listening, um, there's links to um, all of Jeff's books in the description. And I really would encourage you to pick up his, his latest book that he wrote with his wife. Um, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, but also have links to all of your other books down there, Jeff. And uh, yeah, so thanks so much. But hey, sign us off. So give us some form of wisdom from your brilliant Mind. Well, I would just say the thing that I'm learning is um, that the spiritual practices oftentimes um, help us to stop like fighting and contending. Um, but with the charismatic kind of emphasis, there's still a virtue in contending. And so mm. I, I don't want us to lose that sense of pressing, of fighting for, of yearning and longing. Because I know a lot of like the Ignatian practices and like all these things are like, hey, how do you just like, tone down your desire tone down the anxiety to bring the peace like and that's all good i'm a fan of that but let's not let that be everything because you know jesus was about moving forward and you know Mm. taking over and contending and the kingdom coming so so how can we do both of those kind of the inward and the outward motion 
not not balanced 100 of each amen mm, amen all right thanks a lot man Hey, thanks again for listening. Would you please consider sharing this podcast with your friends or anyone who you think may be interested in exploring the intersection between ecclesiology, pneumatology, and missiology? If you know someone who loves reflecting on the Bible and theology, this podcast may be a great resource for them. Make sure to check out my Facebook page, follow me on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Thank you so much.